Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... This episode of the Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Artwalks, kids' shoes based on kids' books. They launched their first line of shoes with six designs by three artists, John Clausen, Scott C., and Joey Chu. Get your own pair along with the other great baby shower gifts by supporting them on Kickstarter. To check out the campaign, click the link in the show notes for this episode at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast or scroll down to find the link in the show notes displaying on the app you're using to listen right now. That's Artwalks, kids' shoes based on kids' books. Support also comes from Bharat Babies. Bharat Babies produces children's books about India with a story for everyone. I've featured their books several times on the podcast and through blog posts, but now I've got a special offer for you, dear podcast listener. Visit baratbabies.com and get $5 off any purchase of $19.95 or more when you use the code READINGISRAD. That's baratbabies.com, B-H-A-R-A-T-B-A-B-I-E-S.com. Offer code READINGISRAD. Some of it is personal experience. I was definitely a uh, closeted and very confused queer trans kid myself who was packed off to Christian youth backpacking camp every summer as a child. Uh, grew up in a very conservative Christian community in Colorado. Charlie Lamont is 13 years old, queer, black, and questioning what was once a firm belief in God. So naturally, she's spending a week of her summer vacation stuck at an all-white Christian youth backpacking camp. As the journey wears on, and the rhetoric wears thin, she can't help but poke holes in the pious obliviousness of this storied sanctuary, with little regard for people like herself, or her fellow camper, Sydney. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 502. I'm Matthew Winner, and today your host is Mel Shewitt, author of the Let's Talk Picture Books blog. Mel and I love talking comics, and the book she's talking about today is As the Crow Flies, a graphic novel by Melanie Gilman, published in 2017 by Iron Circus Comics. It's such a great comic, and the story is framed well through this conversation between Mel and Melanie. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Please welcome our guest, Melanie Gilman, cartoonist of As the Crow Flies. 
Hi, Melanie. Hi. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. Of course. Thank you for offering this. So I would love to start our conversation by basically having you sort of introduce yourself and tell us uh, what you think As the Crow Flies is about. So my name is Melanie Gilman. I am a graphic novelist. I uh, work primarily in LGBTQ YA comics, um, and my pronouns are they, them. And my book, As the Crow Flies, is about a group of queer and trans teenagers who meet and befriend each other in a Christian youth backpacking camp. Uh, so it deals a lot with issues of uh, homophobia, transphobia, racism that queer and trans youth can face in religious spaces. And it also talks a lot about the friendships that and bonds that form between queer and trans youth and how they organize amongst themselves and keep themselves safe, even in environments that aren't always entirely safe for them. Where did this story come from? It's a beautiful story. Oh, thank you. Uh, it came from a variety of places. Some of it is personal experience. I was definitely a uh, closeted and very confused queer trans kid myself who was packed off to Christian youth backpacking camp every summer as a child. Uh, grew up in a very conservative Christian community in Colorado. And uh so there is definitely an element of the book which is drawing from personal experiences that I had, both with the uh, the loneliness and the confusion and the isolation that you can feel in uh, conservative Christian spaces, and counterposing that with the uh, you know the beauty of being in the natural world and the connection that queer youth have to the natural world, uh, and also the intersection of. Uh, uh, issues of faith that can come up for queer and trans youth in particular and the way that that can be counterposed against their relationship with nature. Uh, all of those issues were at the forefront of my mind as I was starting to write this book. Um, and I was interested in putting a book out there that was going to be, you know, YA comics uh, specifically for queer and trans young readers that would take a little bit more of a like quiet and introspective look at some of these issues and, and, you know, not talk down to kids in any way about these kind of topics, because uh, I, I firmly believe that with children's literature in general, kids are very smart and astute and, uh, and the emotional issues that they're going through, even at age 12, 13, 14 are very complicated and rich and they deserve works that are, you know, going to respond in kind to that level of complication uh, and that depth of emotions that they're feeling at that young age. Absolutely. I imagine this was just like the most therapeutic experience for you. I mean, everything that you're <laughs> describing as, I mean, it's basically, you've lived this story. Parts of it, definitely. I mean, it's definitely a fiction book. So there's plenty in there that is, uh, um, that's made up, but it's, Taking uh, taking little breaths and little moments from things that I went through as a kid, uh, but yeah, there's an element of catharsis to putting something out there like this. Uh, it's definitely the kind of book that I wish I had had when I was younger myself. Um, as a kid, I you know I'm old enough that uh, back in my day, back when I was a young person, I really didn't have access to any sort of queer or trans literature at all. Uh, so writing this book is it's cathartic in the sense of it feels 
uh, it's a healing process for me as an adult to be able to create the kind of work that would have benefited me if I had had access to it as a kid. Uh, and it's a way to pay it forward to making sure that, you know, kids today have access to something that I know would have been useful for me when I was in their position, you know, a few decades back. Um, so trying to correct some of the, some of the absences in my own childhood retroactively uh, has been a nice process. I have a feeling you're not quite as old as you're saying you are. Um, <laughs> An ancient. <laughs> um, what was it like then to like, I mean, you're pulling pieces of yourself. You said it's a work of fiction, but to sort of pull these pieces of yourself and put them out there for other people to be this sort of role model was, what was that like to sort of tell the world exactly what you were experiencing in these very tiny moments? Does that question make sense? Because I mean, you're, yeah. like to expose this part of yourself to essentially the world, anybody who chooses to read this book. You know, the, the veneer of fiction helps a lot with that, because I think that as an outside reader, it's probably impossible to tell which which specific moments are things that like, oh, OK, yeah, this is the thing that happens specifically to this author. And these other things are made up um, just because they're so they're so intermixed in this book. Uh, so it never yeah. quite felt like I was admitting any uh, like deep, dark personal secrets to the world at large because because it is a fiction book. And even the little Things that are drawn from my own life are uh, mixed in so much with fictional elements that, you know, they're kind of inseparable at this point. Um, and as far as uh, being a role model for young readers, the thing that I really wanted to communicate to them is that they're not alone in this, uh, that both that adults in, you know, earlier generation, people my age have gone through similar things, uh, which can be important for young queer and trans people because so much of queer history gets erased. And if you are a queer youth, in particular, if you are a queer youth who's living in a environment which can be hostile to queer youth, then you oftentimes don't know too many out and relatively happy and functional queer adults in your community. Um, or if you do know them, they're not out and they're not open about yeah. that uh, because it's not safe for them. So one of the things that drew me, especially to web comics in my early days, and as the crow flies started out as a web comics, was putting it out for free online before it became a print edition, uh, was this idea of accessibility where I'm writing a book which is about and for queer and trans, you know, 12 to 14 year olds. And I'm thinking about children who might not be in safe positions to be able to ask their parents, ask teachers, community members, if they can get access to queer literature, that might not always be a safe thing for them to do. Uh, but if they have access to the internet and if they know how to delete a browser, right, history, <laughs> they probably do, uh, then they can find this comic and it's a little bit easier and safer for them to access this material online. Uh, so that was a big part of the initial decision to put this out online is this idea of accessibility and wanting it to be really available to young readers who, who don't always live in circumstances where they're going to be able to get this the way that you can get other forms of literature uh, through libraries, through bookstores, things like that. I guess I've never really thought about that, how the internet has made things more accessible in that sense. I mean, everyone's like, 
available at your local bookstore, but that's not always the case. You brought up that it started as a webcomic, so I would love to know more about sort of the medium of the book in general. So you say it started as a webcomic. Did you finish it start to end before you ended up publishing it? And I guess I would love to know sort of how long it took you. I mean, it's a fairly personal story, and those can take a long time. So I would love to know sort of what your process was like. So this volume of As the Crow Flies is... It's the first of a two-part series, and I'm in the middle of working on volume two oh, right I now. Wait. Uh, yeah, uh, this first volume took me about five years to draw, and that was uh, mostly having to do with the medium that I'm working in, which is colored pencil, which is a very slow and laborious medium. I, I uh, have a whole question about that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, it takes me probably about... Uh, 11, 12 hours on average to complete a page of As the Crow Flies. So, you know, multiply that by 270-some pages. It worked out well as a webcomic, though, because uh, for those, you know, four or five years while I was drawing it, before it was put out in book form, uh, I could finish a page and then I could upload it. And, you know, the beautiful thing about webcomics is that it's an instant form of publication. So there's not any lag time in between you completing the page and your readers being able to experience it. Uh, and that allowed me to slowly build an audience over the course of the years that I was working on this book. Um, so it felt less isolating than I would imagine it would be if I was, you know, just stuck alone in my, my studio for four or five years, <laughs> like, plugging away on this giant book that nobody had ever heard of and uh, <laughs> then try to release it into the world all at once. Uh, it's a, lot of a different model of publishing, definitely. Um, but uh, Spike Trotman of Iron Circus Comics had been following the webcomic for a few years, and she had worked with me on an anthology project. I submitted a comic to one of her horror anthologies called The Sleep of Reason, um, and she was a fan of the webcomic and thought it would be a good candidate for doing a print edition of, uh, so ended up working with her on the print edition, and it's been great. Um, we're now in the process of working on volume two. Okay, I hope it doesn't take five years. <laughs> I hope so too. It might though. Uh, <laughs> I'll be moving at about the same pace. Uh, but I am going to, once I'm built up a little bit of a buffer for the webcomic of, you know, extra pages in the backlog, uh, I am going to start updating the webcomic again. So readers will be able to, like they did for the first volume, follow along with me as I'm finishing drawing these pages. Uh, so hopefully it won't feel like there's a complete absence of this book for those intervening four or five years while I'm still drawing it. What is it like to maintain that consistency? I mean, that's a long time of drawing in the exact same style. And I imagine, I mean, I look at like comics, web comics, like questionable content is the one that I always come to because it's one of the ones I read for like the longest amount of time. And the evolution, like the visual evolution of the characters changes so much, but you maintain that consistency and it's so laborious. So how do you, I just, how do you do that? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think I changed a lot in terms of my visual style over the course really? of the, the years that I was drawing this. It might not be in as apparent because uh, before the print volume came out, we actually spent some time going back and redrawing some some oh. certain elements of the early pages of the book, just to give it a little bit more feel of a consistency. Uh, but definitely, I think for any artist, if you're going to be working on the same project for you know four or five years, it's 
normal and it's natural that you're going to become a better artist and a better writer over the course of that project. Um, and for me, it's something that I tried to just embrace throughout, just accepted that this is going to be part of the process that the end of the book is going to look like, look like it was drawn by a different person <laughs> than the beginning of the book. And that's just part of the deal here. Um, the second volume might end up looking a little bit more consistent just because uh, I've, you know, I've learned, and you never stop learning entirely, but I've learned enough that I think I'll, I'll be able to maintain a little bit more consistency throughout. Uh, but I mean, that's, that change and that evolution is a thing that I kind of enjoy about webcomics because it's Absolutely. interesting to watch people evolve and grow and push themselves as artists and as storytellers on the page and getting a little snapshot of like five years of a person's creative output all in one volume is kind of an amazing thing when you think about it. Um, so, so for me, I tried to just embrace it, figure this is going to be a natural part of the process, and um, just roll with it and see what happens. And I think it's also one of those where you as the artists are much more aware of that disparity and that difference than Absolutely. most readers are. <laughs> oh yeah, most definitely. Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. Sign up today at StorytellerAcademy.com. Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from the Little Feminist Book Club. Little Feminist wants to help you diversify your child's bookshelf. Each month they send one to two books featuring characters of underrepresented backgrounds, and Little Feminist spends months consulting with a team of educators, librarians, and parents to pick each book and create a suite of hands-on activities to accompany them. Go to littlefeminist.com and use the coupon code WINNER. For $5 off when you order or click on the link at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast and get started today. Raise good humans one children's book at a time. So I would love to talk about you won the Stonewall honor for this book. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. How has that sort of changed? I mean, now that you're working on the second book, has that sort of influenced your current work or volume two? Has, how has it changed your life? I want to know. Oh <laughs> it um, it was astonishing when that happened. Yeah. Uh, none of us were expecting that. I mean, very few graphic novels in general have won that award. Um, so it's it's amazing, honestly, to be uh, just included in a category that also has people like Alison Bechdel and Raina Telgemeier in it for people who have won this award in the past for graphic novels. Um, and, and it was so exciting to get to go out to ALA and to talk to the librarians about the book and to get to hear from readers and from teachers and parents and librarians about uh, like the students and the kids that they'd shared it with and the reactions that they'd got from it. Uh, so all of those things have been wonderful. Um, and the nice thing about winning a high profile award like the Stonewall is that it it allows your book to have a higher level of reach because once you get something like a something with some name recognition like an ALA award, uh, it sort of sends out a little signal to other librarians that like, oh, this is a book that we should try to get into our school library. Uh, so the thing that I'm most happy about with it is that it's allowed the book to have more access 
to readers and, you know, uh, middle schools and high schools where where kids who are, you know, within the same age range as the characters in the book are going to be able to have access to it. Uh, so honestly, that's the that's the best part for me. That was the that was the end game all along is just to try to put this out in in ways where it's going to be able to reach as many people as possible. Uh, so that part has been fantastic. Uh, in terms of, I guess, how it's affected the second volume, um, I think the only thing is that it makes me want to try to find ways to finish the second volume faster, just because I don't want to make people wait so long. Uh, but but it's always a it's always a gamble and it's always a juggling act with, you know, you're trying to draw comics and also, um, you know, do the kind of freelance work that's paying the bills a little bit more in the meanwhile. And, uh, and you know, it's the process of carving time out for yourself to be able to work on these projects, especially when they're so time consuming as this one is. Absolutely. Can you talk about what you do when you're not working on the comic? Definitely. Um, my biggest other commitment is that I'm also a teacher. Uh, so I teach mostly at the college level. I'm teaching at three schools right now. One of them is the University of Tulsa, where I'm teaching an intro to comics class. Uh, another one is the California College of the Arts, where I'm teaching MFA students in the comics program. Um, and I also teach summer workshops and sometimes do student mentoring and things like that for the Center for Cartoon Studies. Uh, so I keep very busy. Uh, and also like to do lots of uh, school visits and classroom talks and like library workshops, things like that along the way. Uh, so that ends up taking up a lot of time, but it's great because it's, um, I mean, this is a, a thing which is really important for me being able to not just make comics, but also be able to help other cartoonists, especially younger and aspiring cartoonists and people who aren't as far along in their careers and can benefit from some uh, professional feedback and help out with their projects. Uh, so that's a big part of what I do. I also have um, just this year ended up wrapping up an entirely different graphic novel, which is going to be coming out in fall 2019 from Learner Graphic Universe. Uh, and it's called Stage Dreams, and it is a very silly, very fun lesbian Western romance all about wow. uh, women outlaws in the Civil War in New Mexico. Uh, so <laughs> lots of stagecoach robbery, lots of smooching, lots of adventures and hijinks. It's very different from As the Crow Flies, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, that sounds and amazing. Yeah, and it's going to be out in September, so I'm really excited about that. And that was definitely a big uh, time commitment to finishing up an entire different book while I'm still, it, you know, working on As the Crow Flies, too. Yeah. Is it also colored pencil? Yeah, it's also colored pencil. It's a lot shorter than As the Crow Flies. It's only about 100 pages. Oh, sure. Um, it's 100 pages of colored pencil. <laughs> you know, no big deal. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I'm very excited to have that one out the door, too. That's awesome. Oh, so I'm actually sort of I'm running low on questions to ask you, but there's one final one I would love to ask. Um, mm -hmm. When people come and visit Matthew on his podcast, he asks a form of this question. So I'm going to vary it up a little since I'm not a librarian. But many of our listeners are going to see a library or classroom full of children tomorrow. And I would love to know if there's a message that we can bring them from you. Yes. Uh, the thing that I'd like to say is that uh, queer and trans literature is for everyone at all ages. Uh, and 
every year there's more and more children's book authors who are putting out uh, queer and trans media, which is designed and meant for queer youth and also shines a light on issues that queer and trans kids in your libraries and classrooms and communities are going through in their daily lives. Uh, And the more that you can put that work out there, the more that those children are going to have reflections of themselves. Uh, And they're going to be able to see examples of protagonists whose lives are similar to theirs. Uh, And that is so crucial for kids growing up just to communicate to them that they are not alone, that they are uh, not broken, that there's nothing wrong with them, and that the problems and the issues that they're facing, that they have a community which is going to support them and uh, there's a way through the things that they're going through right now. Um, That's something that even, you know, someone my age uh, growing up as a queer youth uh, didn't have access to that. So I'm so happy that more and more queer kids have things like that available in bookstores, online, places like that. Uh, the thing to do is just to try to make space for those in your classrooms and in your curriculum, because you definitely have kids who are going to be touched by those books and who are going to find them to be a, uh, an important thing for them as they're in this formative period of their lives. Oh, absolutely. 100% agreed. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Melanie. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. You've been, This is like a, a geek out moment for me. Cause I've, oh, I love, love it. <laughs> Thank you. This is Aaron Becker, author of The Journey Trilogy and A Stone for Sasha. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. Before we leave, I want to give a shout out to all of my patrons, those folks who are supporting the podcast and keeping the lights on care of our Patreon page. Thank you, Jenny, Sue, Amy, Sarah, Kate, Lisa, Darshna, Marianne, Jarrett, Anitra, Mike, Lynn, Link, Corina, Cynthia, Elaine, Doug, Judy, Amanda, Ruth, Laura, Teresa, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You're welcome to come with us too. Just visit patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. 
That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.